your face. with Stan, Thea Riley there, I Won't Do It. And Thea joins me in the studio. Hi, James. It's my favourite day of the whole year because I get to come here. <laughs> Congratulations. I am so – look, I, I cried when I first heard your album, to oh, be honest. Oh, my gosh. 
I, I've actually cried to it as well, maybe for different <laughs> reasons. Um, but yeah, no, it feels so good. Thank you so much. It's a trans pop album. It's really uplifting. It's uh, sublimely electronic, beautifully produced, incredibly thoughtful yeah. lyrics. And I love just watching you while we were just playing that track, I Won't Do It, because you were really feeling the song. Yeah, it gets me moving. But that's was kind of also the, the noticing it in my own life that I needed the uplifting music. <laughs> and I just couldn't keep writing like all these sad sad songs or if i did it was just a way of venting and i would kind of put them to the side during the process so and i don't know is you you deserve to dance to your own music i think <laughs> yeah tell us what the lyrics are about okay so it's been a while it was like 2015 i think so i was like in america and i had left like my family for good for like the first time so i was like feeling all this freedom and like being in just like a better place that I could express myself. And then kind of when you realize the full value of like who you are and what your life has been, you kind of, you really hold on to it. So that's, that's where that feeling of like, I won't do it. I like, I can't listen to any, any of the naysayers, any of the voices that will bring me down. So yeah, I'd say that's the start of my journey of self-confidence maybe even with this song. Yeah. It's a great transition journey album. Mm, yes, it is. And it was with me like the whole time too. I said this in one of the previous interviews, even, um, I mean, I knew I was trans when I wrote it, but I had not transitioned. So, but I would love when um, my partner's auntie would like always call me his wife and stuff. So I was like figuring it out slowly, getting there with like a little encouragement. Yeah. Yeah. I love the fact that you, you produced all of these tracks and you released them as singles and then you kind of redid them all for the album. Yeah. I just have this like I think it's a healthy level <laughs> of OCD um I try and keep it I try and set my studio blocks so that I don't work more than like two hours because it can be bad but I think for the most part if I get an idea in my mind especially for multiple versions of a track because one could make you it's really about the emotional reaction if you don't have an emotional reaction to the track that you like that you can like I said, you should be able to dance to your own tracks. I think what better judge of your music is there than you, like, if it's not making you happy. <laughs> so, yeah, there was a real search for the final version, the happy version, the the emotional payoff version. Yes, that, I'm going to stop there. But what a treat for the for the fans, for the listeners. Like, they got the single and then they get these kind of even more poppy yeah. versions of the tracks. That's beautiful. Most artists mm. don't do that. Yeah, I, I guess not. And I think it's different when you produce your own music to actually give depth to the tracks too like i do think very much of like who's going to listen to it will they have the same reaction that i have it, it can get a little bit too analytical but i think literally if you just follow the joy if you just follow like the i was gonna say bliss i guess it's some kind of like bliss just trying to tune into that like higher version of yourself as well as the that version of yourself but a producer <laughs> like seeing that better producer version of yourself come along and be like okay but i think we can do this with the track yeah. it's an incredible story how you produced so many of those tracks because you were living in a hostel and you had a little oh, space yeah. under the stairs oh my gosh no it, yeah and that's the thing <laughs> this album has so many memories attached to it so many different places and houses that i worked in at least five that i can think of just the sheer amount of time i think almost 10 years next year will have been so thank god i got it out <laughs> before then uh i think that would have been really daunting actually i've been missing working on the album it's this real like void inside me now but um I wondered yeah. about that, to be honest, because yeah. you, um, I mean, you're a prolific producer and you produced 
so many singles in the in the three or four years since I've known you, and I know it was probably mm-hmm. a challenge to yeah. work out which tracks were going to make the cut of the album. Yeah, especially after I went independent and I stopped having someone to be like, this is good or this is bad. <laughs> I had to learn to do that for myself again, and I didn't realise, like... I mean, it's easy. I figured it out in the end. Whatever makes you happy. Like, but really makes you happy. Like, on a deep level, I think. Yeah. Are you... How are you feeling now that the album's done? I mean, you mentioned that void. I feel like I have to learn how to start an album (laughs) again. Like, the beginning process, because it took so long for the last album to just get through the whole process. I kind of forgot what it's like to just be in that beginning stage and just kind of be, you're being like very free and floating around between different ideas and nothing set in stone. And it's <laughs> my slightly neurodivergent brain really isn't happy with this, <laughs> but I will, I will get there. And I, I have chosen about six songs just because I have so much back catalog from the last 10 years and working with labels too, a lot of songs they rejected. So I'm always, considering that catalogue, but at the same time, I need to remember how to write a song, I need to remember how to hone my lyrics again. Yeah, not too much perfectionism, but I'm going to get there. So you're working with, with, with labels. What's going on there? Oh, um, well, I said that I wouldn't do Trance again, and I have made an exception, but it's uh, it's really an exception. Like, I'm not kidding. Because it was a, it's going to be the 10th anniversary for, oh, maybe I can't say this, but it's going to be the first, the 10th anniversary of the first trance vocal that I ever sung. So, so yeah, it's, it, was, it was pretty important to me and actually a really special song to me. So I said I would do it. Yeah. That's actually a bit of a scoop because you were a trance star. Now, a for, star. It was you nice. know, people don't necessarily know, but. Mm. You worked with like 17 or 18 world-renowned mm. DJs. Yeah, more that than remixed, that. More than that. They yeah. remixed your vocals. You had like 18 singles. Yes, they're very single I mean, you worked with Giuseppe Ottiavano. You worked with all these great mm. DJs. And, yeah, and the, the work was quite incredible. You had a huge fan base. You were played in nightclubs all around the world, in Thailand, in the yes, US. and still, it's amazing. It really yeah. blows my mind. And then you, four years ago, at the end of 2019, you did a media conference and you said you weren't going to do trance anymore. It pissed mm. some of your fans off. Mm. Yeah, I lost a few. Um, down to, <laughs> I lost about 2,000 Twitter followers, if I'm honest, but I've never said that out loud before. Um, uh, and it, that's been the thing, the constant battle between what I used to do before trance, which had a small fan base as well, but it was singer songwriter stuff and less focus on production. And and then I decided, you know, it's life. You're going to be several different people. You're going to do several different things. So I have noticed that fan bases are quite picky when you want to chop and change things and say, well, I'm just going to try this or, or I'm going to return to my roots and literally go back to when I was a teenager, obsessed with like the idea of getting into the studio and... What was I listening to then? It was, you know, <laughs> mostly Michael Jackson and, and the Jacksons. And then my sister's music, which was Image and Heap. Yeah. So you're doing a trance single. Who are you yes. collaborating with? What is the track? Because your fans oh. will be kind of, you know, having orgasms over that. <laughs> your trance fans from years ago yes. who, who kind of, you know, trashed you and now probably will Oh, I know. You. Yeah. I mean, I might do it again. I haven't, I've rested for years now. I could have another 10 trance tracks in me. I don't know. <laughs> but, um. Mm. What can you tell us about the track? It. Uh, it's very, I'm going to say, like, young and innocent. And it's like an interpretation of, like, my anxious, avoidant uh, personality type. Yeah. And <laughs> just saying, I'm going to let you go before you hurt me. But it was a very, I was very emotional as a young person. And I think that's the what steered me towards this change to be uplifting and, and um, conscious of that. And so, who are you collaborating with on the trance oh, track? Oh, Mr. Aldo Henrico. I, I, he's a lovely man, and I actually really enjoy working with him. Um, um, well, you collaborated yeah. with him. You did a beautiful track. 
Yeah, um, I we'll played a okay. version of it. We'll be okay. Yeah. Um, wow. Tenth anniversary, anniversary versions. So you're back I, I with won't say it's track. guaranteed, but but when the tenth anniversary comes up of a track, I mean, we're going to go through a time that ten years ago I was kind of kind of prolific and slightly relevant. So there'll be these tenth anniversary versions, maybe possibly. I'm just throwing it out there. If any producers hear this, okay. So you're saying you're doing a new trance track and you're doing a, a remix of "It'll Be Okay." A new version of it as well, and possibly yes, others. But I'm just being cautious not to talk too far into the future, <laughs> because um, yeah, some producers may vibe with the idea. But um, yes, I really want a 10th anniversary for "Will Be Okay" because that's one of the ones I was more emotionally attached to. Was "Will Be Okay"? It was about my husband at the time. Yeah, so very like just held it close to me like a hug. It was yeah. Will a label be involved in this release? Yes, a small label, a trustable label. Um, it will be either Vibrate Audio, I believe, or, oh, I think, it, yeah, or one of their imprints. Yeah, so not very well known, but um, Latin America based. Yeah, they're, they're very good to me, uh, Latin America. So that's um, quite fun to be doing that, but also a great yeah. segue to be doing an, to be doing trance pop, to do a, a nine-track trance pop album that is incredibly mm-hmm. well produced, and then to go back to trance. Yes, I feel um, like I have my independence as well as this like and your momentum. Yes, true, true. But it is a feeling when you have an album out as an artist. It's like kind of part of your identity. Like I've done this, therefore I can. <laughs> allow myself to go and do other things or like trust myself more like there's a real there's a real journey and like there's people who do it without the like emotional ups and downs and they kind of treat it as this job but I don't know that seems a bit um sociopathic to me (laughs) so I'm here for the journey it's an extraordinarily well produced album with stand and considering you did in five houses you were recording it under oh the stairs gosh. um people don't yes, some of the room noise was terrible to deal with really <laughs> yes just the acoustic environments alone like not even thinking about songwriting or production or making sure the listener felt good at the end it was like technically hard too for me like it was a challenge and a learning process so much more than i expected yeah. But you have produced a definitive and trailblazing trance pop Australian album. I mean, I can't think of anyone else that's done that in Australia, a mm. trance pop artist producing yes. an album. Um, and you did it, you know, on a shoestring mm. in really kind of, you know, um, tough environments. Yes, very difficult, just I think for my concentration span, uh, especially at the hostel, because um, those. A lot of people there that I ended up knowing and, um, you know, at the end I really had to be strict with myself and if they were like, we're going out for this, do you want to come? I really had to, like, give it all up <laughs> just for a second there to, to make sure I was working as hard as I should have been working. But, mm, yeah, it was still fun. But the story of how you produced it is, is indeed a story. <laughs> yeah. Even um, uh, going back to, like... Back to America 2015 with I Won't Do It and recording it with my ex-husband and um, I wish I could have used some of the vocals from that session because with both of our knowledge combined we really it's everyone that I've learned from in this album that I'm so grateful to that that like got me to the end finishing line What's the reaction been like? I mean, mainstream radio should be chewing it up and they're not. <laughs> well, um, I really try and keep my expectations realistic, but I've had lovely messages from anyone who comments <laughs> regularly on my social media, um, emotional reactions to, as well as my own emotional reaction. I feel like because it's about being trans, um... And queer, I'm sure it's relatable if you're any kind of queer. It, so, I don't know, I think it, it reached my goal in that way. Because that is that is the reaction I wanted, just people to connect to it and have a means to find their self-confidence. It's so hard. 
you don't want to be this timid little mouse and you know people see that <laughs> we all need that i see it everywhere yeah music videos what's happening there Ooh, you got me there um well <laughs> i would still love to make the video for get it together but it will be just me in the video if i do that the other one on the cards is West End because I have some footage from New South Wales that I shot for that. So that's like well in advance. That was like 2020. I was jumping the gun. But but it's helpful when you finally get to film some more. Um, so, yeah, that one will have less work. I'll probably end up doing that one, that one first. I'm going to say that. Yeah. The media and also the music industry oh. really needs to basically embrace trans artists more. I mean, there's yeah. all this lip talk about, you know, oh, yeah, we lip support, service, yeah. yeah, we support the trans community. Come on, <sighs> industry, a trans artist has just released this album that is mm. so good and they, they aren't embracing it. Well, uh, gosh, I mean, true allyship would be... I'm not even sure I know what that would look like from them. But I don't know, community is a big focus and it would be something like this maybe with community radio, but it's a community label. You know what, I have had a few labels follow me on Instagram since I since I released it, so maybe something will happen. I'll say a prayer for that. Well, it's deserved because it really is a, a, a superbly sublime electronic mm. album. Now, look, I, I know it changes Gosh. from, you know, moment to moment almost, you know. Yeah. When you've got an album like this that's so emotional, it's really, you know, talking it's about your journey, I guess what changes a lot is your favourite track. Truth, yeah. And usually it's based on the, on the um, whatever you're feeling at the time. So, and I noticed this too because I arranged the tracks um, from slowest to fastest on the album. So sometimes I'll skip the first few tracks if I'm a little bit more up in the day and that ends up making me listen to, like, Blessed Be onwards or even get it together. I mean, yeah, it depends how I'm feeling. It'll be over soon. It's very fast but has mellow moments too. So it's like the fastest track. But but it's I made it, like, soft somehow. <laughs> And um, tell us about how people who are close to you have reacted to the album. You know, people that were kind of involved in the production. What's happening uh, for them? Well, not production-wise. It was just me. But um, my mental Hamish is always encouraging, just like in little bits here and there when I need it. Like, I, <laughs> I feel like I have to thank them mostly because um, when I didn't have a label... They would say, this is the song, this is the song, like, you have to include this song. They would really insist on it, so, yeah, I'm really grateful for that. So was there, was there one, this song, that kept coming up the most? <laughs> um, it was a tie between this song called Complete Me, which is at the end of the album, and it's uh, actually about God, because I grew up very religious. Um, and I think, I mean, the other one, Get It Together, people love Get It Together, so, um, I don't know, I think that's, I think that's, all. oh, Trademark Move had one vote too, but I was selective who I showed that to, so that's the only vote it got, but I kept that in my mind, I was like, yep, no, I see that, this song is... <laughs> The track that got me really emotional was 2AM Tired Eyes because oh. that was the first track that you exposed me to from the album. We did yes. an interview in early 2021 and you played mm. an early cut of that on the show that was brilliant. Yes. And then um, you reproduced it and that was fantastic. Yeah. And then I thought, how is she going to reproduce it again for the album, oh. you know, and does she need to? And then it when I heard six it. six versions and I'm going to try and sing it in Spanish too. I've been studying Spanish for like maybe a year now so I can get it all out to the world and even have it in other languages. So that's, that's I think, I held on to two I'm Tired Eyes too because of you and your reaction to it. So I've really trying to plan something for it to make sure it's uh, cemented in my history in 10 years' time. Yeah, I mean, you really took it to a new place, that song. And that, mm, was, that was the one the I cried version. over, actually, when I heard oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did. Um, Trademark Move is a track we're going to hear soon, but tell us Ooh. about it. 
<clears throat> this uh, I wrote during the pandemic because we all had so much time to think, or I guess most of us. Um, really, I'm just ex uh, assessing my life. And the first verse is kind of like about childhood and the second verse is kind of about like codependence and relationships and just seeing where you could have like deserved better or or stood up for yourself not in like an um arrogant or demanding way but just like learning that art of um well i guess you know being self-confident you can be a little bit cocky if you need to so don't be don't be afraid stand up for yourself well it's a fantastic album people want to listen to it they can stream it Yes, absolutely. Easy peasy. Just search Thea Riley with Stand on any search engine. Thea Riley, it is a joy to see you. You are Ooh, glowing. It's always wonderful to see you at 3CR. And uh, thanks so much for coming in. No, and congratulations. I'm just, uh, I, feel, I feel just so proud of you. Oh, I feel so grateful. Thank you. His trademark move.
Hazy Fantasy there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. I'm absolutely delighted to have Justin Knott, who is the director of For Love Nor Money. Hello, how are you? I'm great. I'm so excited about your play. It's for the Victorian Theatre Company and it's mm-hmm. happening for Melbourne Fringe. Yeah, we're debuting it. Very exciting. Written by Angus Cameron. Uh, it's pretty interesting. You've got a director, a poet, and a political advisor, and uh, shit happens. A lot of shit happens. A lot of backs are stabbed. A lot of fronts are touched. So what's that like for you directing <laughs> that? Uh, it's been interesting. I My last play last year was a very different vibe, very sort of, you know, trauma poetry dark 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 this one lots of fun so it's been a rehearsal room full of silliness uh and and wonderful performers so it's been a really fun time actually it's quite a dark play on one level mm-hmm. because it's looking at millennials who've basically been cheated by the economic system, if mm. you like. You know, that notion of you work hard and uh, life will be good. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case. No. And it's even, um, I think, more of a interestingly sticky space for the middle class millennials who do have privilege but still exist in this space where, especially for artists, it's like, well there's not much to go around, there's not much space to grow or to evolve, but you also have to accept that you are better off than others. It's a really complicated space. So it's quite a political play in that sense. Yeah, yeah. And in its blood, it's political. On its surface, it's fun. So how did you and Angus Cameron get together? Angus and I, we actually um, got our roots in some very daggy uni theatre about 10 years ago. Um, and then we stuck it out for 10 years. So we did our first show together six years ago. Um, he, he was really interested in AI, which now is hot property. And back then there was no interest in it. So we actually didn't do very well, (laughs) but, um, I messaged Angus earlier in the year and was like, look, I, I need to work on something and I love your writing. He'd just come off the back of a really good year with two shows. Uh, and so we got back together and. He already had this in his top drawer, burning a hole. And I was like, this is a fantastic piece. It's very relevant and it's super sexy. Let's do it. So it sounds like you were really hungry for this play. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. So what was going on for you at that point when you were looking for something? Look, I I spent two years in the UK chasing the dream of theatre. It's just a whole other world out there. And came back in lockdown. And obviously in lockdown, there was not a lot of theatre going on. So I started working on this show I did last year. that I also wrote. But coming out of that, it was like an immersion into a a much smaller industry in Australia and one that was coming off the back of 10 years of, you know, no funding nationally. Um, I I also realised the other day that uh, we hadn't had a Prime Minister see a play publicly until Albanese, at least in my voting life. So, like, there's not any support for that sort of facet of the arts here or any really. So there was a hunger thematically. I want to do a show about artists who are driven to the point of madness to succeed and I want to do it in the space that celebrates that which is the Melbourne Fringe. So you actually found a play that kind of feeds what you needed um, to kind of you know nourish yourself as a director but Mm. also send those messages that you wanted to convey not just to politicians but to the industry. Yeah yeah it was it was important it's important to speak about you know what you understand the world to be like but at the same time the amount of times Angus and I found each other at the end of a night just complaining about the industry. We wanted to make sure it wasn't that. We wanted to speak to our fellow artists in a way that was like, oh, God, that's so true. But also, yeah, it is true. You know, it's a funny sort of line to, to balance there of teasing ourselves while at the same time making a stand. And now you found you find yourself in Melbourne mm. as a queer director mm. at a time after COVID mm. um, lockdowns mm. uh, where the industry was so repressed and mm. nothing was happening to now being in this environment where the state government and to a lesser extent the federal government is putting money into mm-hmm. the arts. And now you're in this kind of, you know, blossoming queer mm-hmm. arts industry. What's that like? It's thrilling. Honestly, it's thrilling. Like... COVID was a funny one because we were all locked away, but you can't turn off an artist's energy. So it really just bubbled and bubbled and bubbled. And then when we were finally unleashed, I remember going to Midsummer Festival, the first one after lockdown, and it was absolutely thrilling, especially the Vic Pride Parade. And Melbourne Fringe itself just is growing and growing and growing, and especially with its queer representation. Um, so it's a, I, I would say, despite the funding stuff, we're still there and we're still expanding. And it's, yeah, 
It's, it's a great. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's all of this optimism about the industry, but you're 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 directing a play that's got teeth, <laughs> yeah. that's pretty cutting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, how do you think people are going to react <laughs> to that? I was writing my director's note the other day and I had to show it to someone and say, I'm not going to piss anyone off that I shouldn't, am I? They said no, no names were mentioned. But I think I think it's necessary to have teeth in your work. Otherwise, why is it taking up our time? Um, at the same time, it has to be entertaining. I think that's a, it's a negotiation, with we, especially um, emerging and mid-career artists, before they enter the sort of commercial space, if they do, have to negotiate. I want to have, I want to have something to say that's necessary to be heard, but at the same time, my listeners have to want to hear it. So let's make it entertaining. So, yeah, it's dangerous, but it's necessary, I think. It's interesting, isn't it? Because queerness kind of runs that risk mm-hmm. of becoming mundane mm-hmm. and boring mm-hmm. and middle of the road and not edgy. So it is important to actually be able to look at it and 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 and, and, and inject some cynicism into it. <laughs> because I think with what's happening with the attacks on our community, mm-hmm. it's very easy for us to go, well, we have to put up the positive front. You know, yeah. we have to kind of, you know, go, we're hunky-dory and we're great. And you're kind of going, well, no, we're not. No. And also, you're making me think that they also expect us to calm down, to assimilate, to be like them. And that's just a repression of expression that we're actually should be celebrating. So it's pretty great that you're doing a play for Melbourne Fringe with the Victorian Theatre Company Mm -hmm. that does take those risks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, they're a great company. They're a company that are passionate about our Melbourne theatrical legacy, artists who have come before us, but also, especially in partnering with Angus and I, are very keen to bring in new audiences to their uh, their sort of world. You've got a great cast in this mm. play. I mean, I'm a big fan of Matthew Connell, yeah. who's been a huge supporter of this show yeah. and really, really, really love their work. But you've also got Clarice Spinello mm-hmm. and Alexander Lloyd. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the three of them. Yeah, so I I have a tendency to cast by coffee. I hate auditions. I get secondhand embarrassment. So I went on the hunt for these these actors. Um, Clarice and I had a coffee, and there was just an energy there and a charisma there that absolutely matches the role. And if you get to see the show, you'll see what I mean. She's kind of got a Sally Bowles uh, captivating quality to her. Um, and... Alexander just came out of nowhere for me. We actually did have to hold an audition in the end for this last role and he walked in and was just this quietly uh, studious little actor that just brought really big heart in a heartbroken way, which it's an easy way for someone to get in one of my shows, have a broken heart. (laughs) So a poet and a director seduce a political advisor and all of this stuff unfolds and unravels. Who plays the director? So that's Clarice. She's, she plays a film director with big ambitions for LA. And then Alex is playing the poet who can't seem to write and Matt's our political advisor. Wow. Yeah. Did you think about, I mean, did you actually think about mixing them up? Like, was it a hard choice to kind of, you know, go, well, this one's going to play this role mm. and this one's going to be the poet? Like, yeah. Actually, or was it, yeah, we did. It was? So initially, uh, with this play I did last year, Matthew was in it and he was playing uh, me. And it was a role about like a particularly hard period of my life and he did it so well. So when I read the script for, uh, for Love Nor Money, the poet, the heartbroken poet, I was like, oh, it's Matt, it's Matt. But he said to me, no, no, I want to try something different. I want to try cold and calculating. I want to try untrustworthy. I was like, all right, game on. And he, he sells it. He, he's really good. So he's really pushed himself with this role and taken a risk. Yeah. And it's exciting to watch. Wow. Yeah. I can tell it's exciting to watch because you're just glowing with that description. <laughs> I do love my cast. They're really, really good. And you must believe in them as well. I can mm-hmm. really see that you believe in these actors. Yeah, I do. Seeing actors work is a special thing because directors see it all the time because they're working with them. But when you're in a rehearsal room, which other people don't get to see, there's so much work involved and intuition. And, you know, an actor's job is is to just understand people. And people who understand people are generally... Lovely to be around. The play you talked about before where Matthew Connell played you, <laughs> it was a play you wrote and directed called Variations or Exit Music. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I had, I mean, a lot of us have had this. We had a, a significant breakup about a decade ago. And it, as an artist, I was like, I always want to break this open. I want to write something about it. But it took 10 years for me to find any sort of dramatic interest in it outside of just having a little cry on stage. 
And it came to me in London when I wasn't directing because I didn't have a team around me. And I just found myself writing lots of short little passages in the first person. And at the same time as that, I was finding that music was a language through which I was understanding my experiences more so than any other art form. So the piece came together as sort of this uh, back and forth between uh, a person existing in the world and then being stuck in their mind with the aid of musical sort of... Um, with the aid of music and understanding their, their experiences through song. Um, so yeah, that was a very strange uh, kind of theatrical endeavor. We had the, the back wall of this beautiful big set collapse every night at the perfect moment and the audience would just gasp, it was stunning. Wow, yeah. what was it like seeing someone play you? I, honestly, uh, I was surprised at the uh, capacity f I had to separate myself from that aspect of it, however, Every show, people would say, so did Matthew study you? Did he like get down sort of, they call it personage in acting. Did he study the way you sit and talk? And I said, no. And I asked Matt if he'd done it actually without me knowing. And he said, no, it just <laughs> occurred. So knowing that people, especially friends and family, who had seen those periods of my life play out, felt that he was like embodying me. It, it was strange to hear that. But, you know, he did a good job. <laughs> What's it like directing a play that you haven't written? Because that's what's oh, happening with this current product. Is it? It's <laughs> yeah. better. Yeah, especially in the indie sector where you have to apply for the grants yourself, you have to summarise uh, for marketing yourself. When you have that distance, oh, it's just so much easier. You've got a, a sort of broader perspective. You've read it so you know what's interesting from an outsider's perspective. When you're in it, and particularly when you write about your own life, you're like, well, it's all interesting. It's all important. I can't pick anything out. So yeah, it's I've I found it hugely refreshing to come and direct Angus's writing particularly, but yeah, something that's not mine was nice. Well, the play's called For Love Nor Money. Now you said before, you know, you asked somebody if maybe you were going to piss anybody off, and they're mm. like, oh no 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 no. Are you disappointed with that? Did you do you want to piss people off? Uh I want to provoke people. I think I think to piss them off might like get them off hand, and and I I'm not interested in necessarily getting people off hand. As, as much as I am having them come to the table and have a chat. So provocation's better, I think. Yeah, and I mean, that's something that the industry needs to actually see. Mm. And also, you know, funding bodies mm -hmm. also need to kind of go, well, hang on a second, yeah, they need to be told, it's great that you're doing this, but it's got to keep going and it's mm. got to keep building. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can't just do it for one season. No, no, and actually there's really, a, there's a great lack of longevity for Australian works in this country. You see a show debut at the MTC, for example, and you very uh, rarely see it ever staged again. And then we talk about this canon stuff of Summer of the 17th Doll. It's like, yeah, what happens to the canon that's written now? Where is it? So yeah, it's important that funding bodies give that support for shows to return. And actually 45 Downstairs in Melbourne are doing that now. They're bringing shows from the fringe into their major season. It's great. What's next for you? Ooh, uh, I, th I think it was announced today. I'm collaborating with 45 Downstairs and another fantastic queer director, Katan Potofsky, um, on The Inheritance. Fantastic. Yeah, premiering uh, for the first time in Australia. Wow, now Katan's done lots of great work at mm. Theatreworks. Yes, yes, yes. Katan's had a very busy year. He's, he's kicking goals. <laughs> so tell us more about that collaboration. Actually, uh, so it's a seven-hour play. It's in two parts. No way. Yeah. It's, seven it's hours. You're directing a seven-hour play. Well, we're directing together, and that's the reason. Katan said, look, it's it's a monster, and I want to do it right, and I, I love your work. And so he said to me, well, why don't we tackle it together? Um, so that's how that happened. Uh, interestingly, he, he came up to me at a foyer and was like, what are you doing for midsummer?" I said, oh, taking a rest. He's like, well, what about the inheritance? It's like, all right, no, no more rest. I'll do the inheritance. It's too good to pass up. Wow. So that's yeah. a bit of a scoop knowing that's happening for midsummer. Yeah, yeah. And that means you're going to be diving straight into the inheritance. There's not going to be much of a mm. rest after for love nor mm -hmm. money. No, and Katan's even got a show on currently that he's rehearsing. So he's going back to back, literally back to back. Justin Knott, it is so exciting. You are the director of For Love Nor Money. It's a Victorian theatre company production. It's written by Angus Cameron. And it's playing at the Fringe Hub Meeting Room, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton, which is Trades Hall. It is, yeah. And it's happening October 11 to 22, Fringe. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you so much for popping into 3CR. It's been great chatting. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Here's Paul Weller.
something to me Something deep inside Hanging on the wire For love I'll never Chase it all away Mixing my emotions Throws me back again Hanging on the wire, yeah I'm waiting for the change in your face on 3CR with James and a huge shout out to Race Rage they've got a giga tomorrow at the Tramway Hotel 4 to 6pm in Fitzroy North so um, amazing amazing non-binary First Nations uh, musician, rapper uh, incredible artist so if you can check it out Uh, here's Lenny Kravitz
Lee Kravitz there. And another fringe shout-out goes to Madam Nightingale, who's got a show at 8 o'clock tomorrow night. Check it out on the Melbourne Fringe website. It's a collaboration with Cloudy Well. Alrighty, I'm out of here. Uh, we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. Taking us out is Bow Wow Wow. face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. <laughs>